To EnterTheRealWorld.com, I am your host Ben Phillips. I'm joined this week, as always, by Matt Waters. I was going to say, I did, Matt, I did Matt, not Matthew. Yeah, I was going to say before you add the as always, it sounded like you know. Do you get a different host in? I don't know about sometimes. Are there secret episodes of this show? I wouldn't put it past Damon Lindelof. <laughs> yeah, I've got someone else to co-host the secret episodes that take place in between episodes <laughs> yeah. of this. You uh, wouldn't I'm even believe what happens with Captain Metropolis. <laughs> I've not sent them to you yet, but they will be coming. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. This is episode four of Nothing Ever Ends, our podcast covering HBO's Watchmen TV series created by Damon Lindelof based on the seminal graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. One of which consulted on the show and the other cannot be reached. (laughs) Yeah, Damon Lindelof, we actually haven't touched on this yet, but Damon Lindelof sent a letter to Alan Moore before the show started. Oh no. And like he published the letter online and has said that whether or not Alan ever got in contact with him remained between him but you can kind of infer from certain interviews that if Alan Moore did get in contact with Damon it was not a thumbs up you have my backing for this project (laughs) well no he's never gonna say that ever is he it's just like there are some interviews later on where Damon's doing where like it's kind of implied that Alan never Alan Moore might have given his expressed discomfort in them doing it for the tv show but it's obviously like eggshells to tread on (laughs) Yeah. But but Dave, Dave Gibbons was wheeled out at Comic-Con as like the big like oh look we've got someone involved in Watchmen as if Dave Gibbons hadn't signed off like on everything yeah. on everything post Watchmen cuz he likes the money that he gets from it. <laughs> yeah, like he's just kind of like yeah sure I, this is how the industry works. I don't give a shit. I'm getting paid for doing this and yeah. like if you need my stamp of approval fine. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I think sometimes you hear this kind of stuff about Alan Moore and it's like, oh, what what a prick. Like, this thing's really good. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's good, terrible, or in the middle. He just doesn't want anyone to touch it, ever. Like, I'm, I would imagine, it, you know, he's a human being with eyes and ears connected to a brain and a heart. If you actually sat him down with this, he'd probably think it was good, objectively. But, like, he just doesn't want anyone to touch his projects. And that's, I, that's fair. It's his stuff, but... Yeah. yeah, I think I think if it didn't have the backstory of him being forced out from having the rights to it, yeah. then there's a different conversation there. I do like still it... think, wouldn't it be wild if the coronavirus forces it out of print, <laughs> and then he can just force all these TV networks and whatever to just take it off the air and yeah, like, this, this never show a rerun before. of the movie, stop printing discs of the movie, you know, take it off digital stores. I, I wonder if he could do that, or if that's like a, we've made it now, therefore we own it. I imagine it'd be difficult to kind of reverse that. Like, Warner Brothers would still own the rights to this. Yeah. In some 
in some fashion, but yeah. he might get the original book back. It just would mean that yeah. Warner Brothers would never be able to do anything new with the property. Well, but that's... maybe they shouldn't do anything new <laughs> after this. To be no, honest. and that's the thing is, I don't think there is anything new they should do, but obviously, as we discussed in episode one of this, <laughs> uh, D- DC have literally just wrapped up a storyline which is expressly to bring Watchmen into the property DC universe. Yes. And they are messing around with those characters still, and they obviously have storylines in place to to play off this stuff. Obviously. There will be more Watchmen content on the horizon, but Damon Lindelof has pretty much kiboshed the idea that he will come back and do a second season of this show. Mm. But this show is a success, so we could see Warner Brothers turning around and getting someone else to come and write a season or do something with it. But they also are cagey about whether or not they would do that. They seem to say that, like, we're not going to do anything without Damon, but... If, if John Ridley came over with an idea, I'm sure they'd let John Ridley do something. Carlton Cuse. <laughs> so that's, the Carlton Cuse has become such a After TV everyman. Oh, like, okay. TV, TV everyman. Like, you look at... He's created, like, 17 shows since Lost Women of the Air. Jesus. So Damon's obviously just done Leftovers, and he's just done Watchmen. Mm. Carlton Cuse has done, since Lost ended, Bates Motel, The Strained, Returned, Colony, Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan, Lock and Key, and has also got, like, several other shows that he's been involved in. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just a guy who churns out content. I assumed like, they were going to be things I'd never heard of, but I, I, <laughs> I know of those shows. I didn't know he was uh, behind them. I think, I think it's more like... He might do a couple episodes or, like, be a creative consultant, but it'll be someone else running them. I think Lock and Key is the one that he's running at the moment expressly. But, yeah, like, he he just keeps on doing stuff. Taking a page out of JJ's playbook. Yeah, but he's not... Set it up and walk away. (laughs) Yeah, he's not the interesting party of the Lost duo. No. He obviously... I think he managed to curtail some of Lindelof's more extreme ideas... Sorry, you... it, it got more extreme than what they actually did in Lost, with a donkey that controls a time wheel, or okay, an island-moving wheel, or whatever. That's, that's a fair comment. I just mean, he probably stopped Damon from going in and going like, you know what this season 5 episode needs? We're going to cut away to a character we've never met before, yeah. and do an entire episode based around them off-island. And, and never then reveal again. that they're someone's grandfather. Yeah, I think that's the kind of stuff that was maybe trying to pull back well, I to jump ahead, I think that the obviously Lost is known for flashbacks, and episode six here is a giant flashback episode, pretty much. And I think it dicks on the flashbacks from Lost, quite frankly, <laughs> like in uh, terms it, of technical execution. So maybe yeah, uh, it's I mean, and it's the fact it's a Lost director as well doing it. Like Stephen Williams did a hell of a lot of Lost. I think he he did like the penultimate episode of pretty much every season of the show. Mm-hmm. He is second to Jack Bender. I think he was an executive producer on the show as well. So this is this was them bringing this guy back, who obviously had worked with Damon, and then gets let loose on yeah. one of the most complex flashback episodes that Damon's ever been involved in. Yeah. Wow, he nailed it, so... Yeah, that's the second episode we're going to talk yes. about. The first episode we're talking about is episode five, Little Fear of Lightning, written by Damon Lindelof and Carly Ray, directed by Steph Green. So, yeah, this is the most leftovers episode of the season, <laughs> I would say, in that it's our first, like, episode three, Focus on Laurie, functions very similarly to a leftovers episode, but it's one of those ones where there's still a lot of exposition and interaction with the main cast. Mm-hmm. It kind of bolsters our knowledge of the world whereas episode five 
delves very heavily into Wade and we only get very brief appearances from other characters. Like Angela has like a wolf by cameo and Laurie's in the background of like two or three scenes. But this is Wade Tillman for a full hour. Yeah. Was it everything that you wanted? Oh, I didn't know I wanted it, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it was great. He is an incredibly interesting character. It's an incredibly interesting actor who... I know he's in a lot of stuff, but I still feel he should be in more stuff. But yeah, it was... From that opening shot, I knew. Like, you asked me, when did you know that the squid was going to drop? And the second they flashed up Hoboken, New Jersey, 1985, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. see where we're going here at one minute to midnight on the doomsday clock and everything. Uh, yeah, so obviously Tim Blake Nelson, most known probably for being one of the Coen brothers' go-to actors. Mm-hmm. He's been in a hell of a lot of their movies. He's just someone that you recognise. We've covered him on the podcast in that he is Samuel Stearns in the Incredible Hot movie. <laughs> I completely forgot that. and I, Yeah, I relearned that yesterday. Yeah, he's, he's a male Margot Martindale. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> character actor tim blake nelson yeah i look forward to the second season of two Bertie, uh, featuring him as a criminal regularly oh no uh, <laughs> he was the titular character in the ballad of buster scruggs though he was yeah haven't but seen I'll... it but i do know that <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a fun movie but that's not what we're talking about today we're talking about the fact that this episode opens as you said in hoboken new jersey in 1985 way tillman is missionary or i assume so a bus full of uh of religious kids i guess come to tell the people of new york that their sinful ways are leading to nuclear armageddon so they get off and they start preaching to a bunch of not tops that are hanging around in new jersey yeah Uh, i did catch i did catch the not tops thing this time i i I missed that reference in the uh in the prequel comic that this is like the origins of of the top knots or whatever but yeah i did catch this time it's like oh it's them okay yeah they're not very receptive to what he's peddling a girl does some faux oh come with me and well i'll fuck you because oh the world's gonna end don't you want to get laid one time oh psych i took all your clothes (laughs) come on dude they're just incredibly mean but obviously he's not very world wise no no probably the first time anything like that has remotely happened to him i do like the on the nose touch that it's in a house of mirrors given yes. what his his identity will become. I mean, it's incredibly on the nose, and he, it follows up with him self-flagellating after that by screaming at himself for being an idiot, and yeah. his weakness was him sinning by getting an erection whilst a girl strips him naked yeah. when he's presumably never had sex with a woman before. No. But oh, being in the House of Mirrors is probably the thing that saves him, because the squid falls. Yeah, the unfilmable shot. squid <laughs> that couldn't possibly be committed to film. Here it is on television. It's very dark, which obviously, they they darken it because it makes it easier to hide. It's such heavy CG. Otherwise, it would definitely be on the poster, but I can't find a shot of it there. You can't even see what it is, but yeah. I think uh, I think later on, like, if you've got a good... <laughs> kind of black depth television you can see it but obviously oh i mean i could see it on my television it's just when i'm when i'm scouring the internet for pictures of it for the poster for this episode i'm like that's way too dark yeah yeah it's crazy though like you hear it and then he goes outside and just you know this i almost i guess it's sort of a boardwalk funfair type whatever everyone's just dead on the floor and he's just wandering around and the, the eventual pull out to uh you know, I thought it would stop at a tentacle. Like, you you see the buildings, and you you see a couple of tentacles, and then, nope, here's the full-on fucking thing, just sitting on top of a destroyed building. 
Yeah, and it's uh, the closest they get, apart from another location as yet to appear. Like, <laughs> this is the closest we get to somewhere that was a main focal point is it of the Watchmen comic. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the Owl Cave? I, you said on the nose a couple of minutes ago, they also do Careless Whisper here, which I was <laughs> like, this is very on the nose. But then I was like, maybe that's the point, that this is all too good to be true, and they're faking him, and then obviously they will employ the... Uh, the trademark movie trailer, slow acoustic version of classic upbeat song uh, <laughs> later on, but I like it here. So yeah, it's good. It's it's again, it's kind of one of the Damon is definitely planting his flag on Team Squid, like <laughs> a squid pro quo. <laughs> a squid pro quo. Yeah, I, I, as I said to you off mic, when Angela went to him and he had his little dark room full of squid pictures, I very briefly thought he meant he made it to take pictures of the big squid before it melted into water. And then it was like, oh no, obviously he means the ones around here. But I was kind of right, in a way. Yeah, he he has an obsession with this squid. It's something that's completely destroyed his life, as it would, because, like, back matter to this episode, and even in the episode, there's a support group of people who were affected by the squid. It reinforces one of the main themes of the season of generational trauma. I think this is the episode where that is explicitly referenced with Mm. the guy who's like, my mum had me in her belly and or no no not even that like he wasn't born for about 10 years after the squid but but he feels that he has been damaged through it or whatever yeah yeah and the entire episode is based around the idea that this is a massive ptsd causing event and people are still affected by it people who are there people who weren't there but felt the psychic shockwaves around the world yeah Again, not canon, but in Doomsday Clock, the therapist's son was institutionalised because of what the psychic wave did to him. And I don't think it's impossible to imagine similar happened canonically in the Watchmen universe. Was it supposed to be the whole world, or was it just New York and surrounding area that got hit I, by the psychic blast? Because I think the whole world got affected by it in I that, so such too. a massive event. And when, how far away you were and how much you picked up on it is dependent on how yeah. psychically attuned you are. So, like, you could be in Australia and get hit by a psychic shockwave. It just yeah. said that you were very well, yeah, much... Yeah, I mean, they established psychics are real because Ozzy used one to make the damn thing. And yeah. the, the vision everyone sees was, like, written by a sci-fi horror-type writer, wasn't it? Or a team of them, even. Yeah. But I think but I think the implication is is that New York massively was affected by oh, this yeah. to the point where the next scene on the show... Oh, is... I love it. Begging <laughs> for tourism. <laughs> yeah, like, come back to New York, which is such a... Like, again, what I love about... Damon doing these alt-universe shows is they think yeah, through I, so much of this stuff. That's that's good attention to detail, but like, yeah, no one would fucking go to New York anymore if this happened. <laughs> and... Like, it would still hold a lot of the cultural cachet, like they still have musicals, and you can see the Oppenheimer musical going on in the background behind them. <laughs> uh, which, of course. Of course. But I just, like, there's so many questions in this. I think we discussed it on the Superhero Pantheon episode that I guessed it on, is that Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos is one of the people in the TV commercial, obviously playing off the fact that he was in The Sopranos, but it leaves a question of, like, what the hell does The Sopranos look like in a universe in which the squid fell? (laughs) You film it entirely in Jersey. You don't Uh, (laughs) go to New York ever at all. Yeah, Yeah, I like that a lot. And it, it opens up this moonlighting career that Wade does where he is, you know, he watches focus groups from behind the glass and tells them what they really think because it's like, oh, they'll tell you they love it, but they hated it or whatever. And it makes sense for his character that, like, he has these skills. For a moment, I thought, oh, is this what he did before he became a cop? But then 
no, it's he's doing both jobs at once. He became, he became a cop. This was what he did, but he carried on doing it afterwards. But yeah. it's kind of more consultancy as opposed to maybe running the room or just being the guy behind the mirror yeah. in this case. Or fewer bigger money gigs as opposed to consistent smaller ones or whatever. Yeah, because he's he's like they're in Tulsa and people are like they're coming to him with quite big brand names like it's the New York Tourism Board, mm-hmm. it's Smileyos, and. Yeah. You're sat there kind of going like, why are they coming to this guy? Is is he this well known that he's just this good, or is it the like Tulsa regional brand that's trying to get his feedback on this? Maybe, but it, it is a fun touch to his character that he does this. I think. Yeah, it helps the episode because you get multiple scenes set in this location where mm-hmm. he gets to do similar things to what he does in the pod. But it it just kind of shows that he's got a life outside of this. But we cut back to the Tulsa Police Department where we see Laurie has taken over the investigation of the South Calvary where she starts pivoting them towards find the church. We know what the church looks like. Just find a church in Tulsa, which... probably easier said than done yeah but it is still like showing that she's one step ahead of everyone else like she was the only one that wanted to do an autopsy on judd you know that she's actually working this and it's like why don't you find where they filmed it instead of trying to find them and i yeah i i do take the point that like finding a church in i, I don't know if tulsa is part of the bible belt technically but you know a very religious red state obviously that's a harder task than it sounds but it's a good idea like go try and find it I like that they start debating about what denomination the church is afterwards, whilst Red Scare is eating a lettuce sandwich. I was like, with... oh shit, <laughs> sorry, but it's gonna go bad. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Angela comes to Wade and wants him to use his ex to find out what the pills are. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's already given him the pills, but she's kind of pressing on him to, to put pressure on his ex to... Yeah, like, where's my update on these pills I brought you last episode? <laughs> yeah, whereas then Laurie comes in, calls him into her office to have a conversation, reveals that reveals that she's <laughs> bugged his cactus, uh, keeps on calling him Mirror Guy, which is fantastic. Yeah. She just refuses to... to call him by his and doesn't even say like i'm inclined to know believe that you know what my name is or (laughs) yes um and he also drops that line about the regs say to keep masks on inside the precinct i guess someone you know someone they're escorting to a cell or looking through a window i i don't know but yeah she is like why don't you take it off and he keeps it partially on which you i picked up on last time and you were like oh there's a reason to that and i think this is where we get it where like his mask is made of a substance they call reflectine yeah reflectatine reflectatine sorry that is alleged to block psychic waves and his his little uh john deere-esque hat is also lined with it so he is always wearing one form or another of this mask just hinting it oh this dude's real fucked up yeah (laughs) It's good that the episode puts in the reveal that he was at the squid before they reveal what the reflector team does. Because mm-hmm. it makes it seem, not that it makes it seem rational, but it makes it more sympathetic. Yeah. Um, that if it was just, he can't take off his mask, and you start going like, oh, is it a sex thing? Is it something else? <laughs> but like this very firmly captures it in a kind of empathetic yeah. psychological disorder. Yeah, this man is very afraid. Like, it, it'll be spelled out in a minute when he starts talking about the tunnel and, and the lady is like, nah, you're still in there or whatever. But 
yeah, this man is very traumatized. He is living a pretty fucked up life with like certain measures and and routines and behaviors in place that like arguably don't need to be there, but he has convinced himself they do. And the they... amount of money that he throws at them as well. Yeah, it, you feel sorry for him throughout this, and like it, I guess it is a bit of a trope that you have these characters that at times behave like a dickhead, and then you explain, oh, but they're actually super messed up, and you should feel sorry for them. And it's like I don't think it should reframe how you think about him as a person, but, like, I think it is important to delve into, like, why people are the way they are. Yeah, it's... And I like that Laurie seems almost sympathetic to him in this. Yeah, well, I think because he's... <laughs> it's the closest he's getting to, like, dropping his act and, like, being real, and I think yeah, she sees through it anyway. She's, so. She sees through it, but then she also has in his file that he was there on eleven two, which, and obviously in the comic book, she wasn't there. She arrives minutes afterwards and has a very visceral physical reaction to it well partially um, so, because uh whenever, partially whenever, she's been teleported yes and she throws up whenever that happens uh yeah yeah fucked up but yeah so she she does feel sympathy for him for being there well i don't know whether or not it's the only person she's ever met who is there but it's definitely something that plays in her mind that this is someone maybe not to treat carefully but to have a degree of sympathy for yeah when she um, like holds no reverence for like anyone else ever, seemingly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously, the the conversation like we as we said before, there's the the bugging of his desk that will play <laughs> off later on the episode. But yeah. just important to note it again. So we come back to Wade's home where he he gets his mail, including a bunch of letters for uh, Cynthia Tillman, which would apparently be the ex yes. that he was that he was talking to Angela about. He also has a very thick kind of product bible for something called eds which he just kind of like sits at his home and then he goes and sits to watch american hero story yeah he does and uh we get a <laughs> not very tastefully done scene of hooded justice fucking captain metropolis and wade is just sort of like mm. <laughs> uh yeah it's you know it was mentioned in the comic uh that, that these two were Rumoured to be, you know, in a relationship, and uh, Hooded Justice had to pretend to be dating Laurie's mum to throw people off the scent, etc., etc. And yeah, as is the uh, the custom here with all the American hero story stuff, they just try and make it look as hammy and shoddily done as possible. Like, is this him like passing judgment on American Crime Story and American Horror Story? I don't know what he's doing. I think it is a parody of a certain type of show and whether mm. or not it's supposed to be what Zack Snyder does or whether or not it's supposed to be what Ryan Murphy does I'm not mm. sure or if it's just a com combination of the two sensibilities where it's like what if we took the high camp art of Ryan Murphy and combined it with <laughs> the lack the, of uh... the, the high melodrama grim dark notion yeah. of Zack Snyder yeah. just, I've never seen either of the American story shows but I was under the impression they were good or at least crime story was supposed the, to be good. The first season of Crime Story is absolutely fantastic. I the think it's that's also, the OJ one, right? That's the OJ one. It's also, I think, the one that Ryan Murphy had the least involvement in writing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you think about Glee and you think about American Horror Story, they're all in, like oh, just Lang. Is he from Glee? He's from Glee. Uh, okay. All right. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's that. I mean, he also did the politician on Netflix. He is very much the king of when he's very involved. They feel very much like his shows. When he's not that much involved, Day can sometimes be quite insightful. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, although Poe's fantastic show. 
yeah, this has just turned into me recommending Ryan Murphy shows, but oh. we're not going to do that anymore. No, so in the middle of him watching the very, very gay American hero story scene, which we find out in the Pedia files is actually playing off of the sexual assault scene from earlier on in the episode, which just sounds cringy the way that Petey does and I'm not sure if that's him being a good writer or if it's like we're supposed to think that it also sounds bad no matter how they do it yeah Uh, (laughs) a machine starts going off and an alarm starts blaring and Wade runs to the bomb shelter that we found him in last episode where he tries to turn off the alarm fails and then gets very angry and calls the extra dimensional securities hotline (laughs) smashes that up real good as well it's I, I at first assumed this was some sort of thing that was tracking the squid falls, but instead it's supposed to just be an alarm alerting people of extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional activity, and I he think just runs does, drills on it. Yeah, I think it does track the squid fall. I think, like, okay. the EDS securities or EDS have, like, a central hub where they can send a buzz when they go like right we've got a squid fall in this area we'll tell all the people in this area that it's happening and they can run to their shelter if mm. they're in a place where they can run to their shelter but obviously wade has gone way out of what he should be doing and has been running 500 tests on this thing yeah which... and, the, and the guy on the phone is like you should only do a test every six weeks or something like that so and he's like how long have you had this thing sir because like yeah putting it together he, there's no way he's owned it long enough to have completed 500 legitimate tests and he says as often as i deem necessary or whatever yeah like even even if he owned it for two years that's still pretty much a test a day <laughs> yeah yeah oh jeez, a very unwell man yes. and he wants a new one and the guy tells him that like oh we can get it to you in however long and he says no i need it like immediately tomorrow or whatever and he's like that will cost as much as the unit itself he's like fine good do it so you know clearly he's not hurting for money or maybe he's directing almost all of his money into this kind of stuff and he wants another role of uh, reflector teen as well yes it is you can see that he doesn't have like that many vices Mm. outside of this and he probably earns a pretty penny from doing this advertising stuff because we cut to him doing smileyos which is (laughs) the cereal without sugar which yeah. It's quite amusing. Before he gets the page buzz that his ex-wife has got information on the pills. Yes, and now we get our classic Damon Lindelof dead dog moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, his ex works in a cloning lab for pets, which I infer, well, as was mentioned in, in the Petypedia stuff, Ozymandias pioneered this technology for cloning pets. Uh, and now we see a lab where it happens, and because this dog has been cloned and she's like, do these two look identical to you? And I don't even know if he's serious when he says one of them is bigger than the other or if he's just fucking with her. But she incinerates, I guess, the one that is uh, is faulty and messed up. I know it's a clone, but that's still a living thing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, it's a good thing they don't do the extended, like, pull out the trash, see the ash of the dead dog. Yeah. But it, I think it does show how callous they are. Like, there yeah. is a sense of lesser than life. Mm-hmm. In regards to this dog, like, oh, it's just a clone. It doesn't matter. It it's been count. alive for it, yeah, it's been alive for two minutes. Yeah, which reflects Ozymandias' treatment of what are they called? Is. is it Phillips and Yeah, Phillips and Crookshanks. Crookshanks and Phillips, yes. No, not Bubastus. He feels horrible about Bubastus. Yeah, uh, but he does still uh, essentially incinerate Bubastus to kill Doctor Manhattan says, or attempt to kill Doctor Manhattan. He does Manhattan. say forgive me. Yeah, okay. And I like this little conversation between the two of them. You get this inference that, like, for a while he might have stopped wearing the hats while he was with her, and 
she says about how she spent seven years trying to convince him that like she wasn't going to run away with his clothes or whatever and he he says this line about seven years of bad luck which is cute given all the mirror shit that is involved with his character and it's kind of wild because and she says things like you could have your pick of women and it's like i mean he's not that he's not a very attractive man and he's a bit of a dick but i mean i don't know i guess he has some wisdom to him and maybe when he's less jittery he is able to be a bit more charming i mean you know he charms that lady in a minute so from here we we careless whisper playing in the background during this the as you said the signature like slow it down play in the background uh, I don't think that's yeah. I think that's slow. no, no. They they're playing a, a, maybe not a slow down version, but there is a instrumental oh, okay. cover of Careless Whisper playing in the background whilst they're in the. Um, oh, is that like a Muzak type version? Yeah, almost. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I had that written down later on. I didn't, I didn't spot that one. Yeah, yeah, it's all over this episode, Careless okay. Whisper. But we go to the extra dimensional anxiety support group, uh, <laughs> where, as I said, we get the the first mention of genetic trauma brought up. I like that they call them friends of Nemo. <laughs> as in a reference to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh-huh. in that the Nautilus fights a giant squid yes. it's cute extra textual reference that, I mean, it, it's obvious enough that it doesn't make you feel smart for getting it but yeah. but at the support group we get a woman walking in paid by Paul Malkinson uh, who you might recognise from Sons of Anarchy and Deadwood and, and lots of very good TV shows coming in and kind of catching Wade's eye. She doesn't mm-hmm. say anything during this first meeting, but he's obviously intrigued by her presence there. Yeah, and I, I wondered if some of his big speech was performative for her when he's talking about, you know, oh, we all would have died if not for the squid because we were on the edge of nuclear Armageddon and, like, you're in a tunnel and and there's light at the end of it and we can get out of it. And it's like, we know for a fact that he is still very deeply traumatised and she sees through it and calls him on it in a minute, but... Yeah, it felt very like he's flexing his, like, big brain for her or whatever. They have a conversation outside, which she kind of... She's smoking tobacco, yet the first reference to the fact that tobacco is a banned substance in this universe. You get a liberal president and they're going to start taking away all your civil rights, you know? (laughs) I I do like the touch they've maybe extended some of this too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there, there is an unfettered kind of liberalisation to a lot of the stuff. And whilst you can sit there as leftists, but okay. yeah, so you can see the positive nature to some of this, but I also think there is a level of them doing the heightening thing where they kind of see, like, but this is, you can see why people would want Redford out yeah. it, for some of the things that they've kind of implemented as as laws in yes. this alternate version of the US. Yes. But, but she manages to convince him to come for a drink with her. He kind of psychoanalyzes her and lie detectors her when she gives him a false occupation and then follows up by giving him her true job. Yeah, I can't remember the ones she claims and she, he's like, no, you're not. And then it's like, I'm a radiologist. Indeed you are. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, he's just very good at doing this, telling people lie. And probably that plays off with the fact that the reason why he had his clothes stolen from him were all about that woman. Lying to him. Yeah, not being able to pick up on social cues and stuff. Yeah. Uh, And just generally making him a distrustful person from that. And yeah, like, turning this thing into a, like, party trick to get laid almost is very, like, that's accurate. I feel people would do this kind of thing if they have this kind of special skill. And she talks about... Steven Spielberg made a film about the band Pale Horse instead of Schindler's List in yep. this universe because she yep. says how it's all in black and white except for certain things and like oh it won all these awards and he's like i haven't seen it and yeah fun touch there yeah it, um, it, it's again lots of little fun parts in this i and you can see a world in which seven years after this event spielberg's like 
no, this takes precedent over... It's bigger than the Holocaust, because it happened in America. Yeah. (laughs) And and her fantastic quote when she's talking about, like, the only time I'm not petrified is when I'm watching that film, dot, 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 or fucking. (laughs) And she she looks away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at me, I'm drunk. And they're like, you've had half a pint. Yeah. Women. Creatures of subtlety, men unable to pick up on cues. <laughs> but yeah, she she has a friend pick her up from the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wade watches after the car goes away, and then lo and behold, a head of lettuce. Yes, and he's like, "Oh shit, they're seven k," and he goes, he follows her, tries to call for backup. He should have known that it sounded a bit like they don't even sound like cops, the people he's <laughs> talking to. But I guess in that first episode. When he called into Panda, like that didn't really sound the most uh, copy. Yeah, uh, or as we know it anyway. But maybe they're going for this. This isn't the NYPD. This is Tulsa. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, there's no, there's no like dispatch or anything like that. They just immediately <laughs> answer and go, yeah, sure, we'll send someone. Exactly. Yeah. But right. we find out the Seventh Cavalry are based out of a mall and they're dicking around with teleportation technology. I do love that reveal that it's not a church; it's a set. Like they've dressed a room to look like a church and they're just pointing a camera at it. Like that's a very fun thing. So like Laurie is right to try and follow that lead, but it will never lead anywhere because it's not a real church. Yeah, and I like that they reinforce even in episode one when they have the kind of shootout with the, the Seventh Calvary members. Yeah. They're still quite rednecky, like they've got <laughs> the the kind of racist poster of Dollar Bill up on the wall. Yes. Another one of those coming soon, don't worry. <laughs> and then, but then in this episode, they're like, no, they're radiologists and senators, and there are smart people working for this. Mm, but who... I think, yeah, but then Keen does say they're a bunch of idiots. I think. <laughs> I think a core contingent of them are a bunch of idiots who he's lied to, but I also think... I think it's, yeah, I think it's easy to galvanise, like, for your rank and file mm. to get some more idiot people. But yeah, there, there is clearly a uh, higher ring here because, as you said, they're dicking about with technology. A basketball just falls with a blue flash and they have this big gate and Wade knows what it is by name, like the model and everything, which hints at how much he's looked into all of this stuff with his trauma and everything. And yeah, they reveal... You know, she reveals herself and that this was all a trick. They've rigged the letters to fall off the truck. They, like, intercepted his walkie-talkie signal, so no one is coming for him. He's here by himself. He also walks in and goes Tulsa PD or whatever, with no mask on. It's like, well, you're dead either way, dude. Like, (laughs) But then, yeah, uh, Keen Jr. reveals himself, proving me right that he is behind it all. Or at Uh, least behind the 7th Calvary stuff. Well, okay, yes. Uh, I love... Wade saying, are you even trying to hide your voice, Senator? And it's like, yeah, okay, he's a public... Oh, sorry, sorry, I forgot to take my mask off. Yeah. Uh, I love this scene with King. Yeah. It, it's got a whole lot of... It kind of clicks into place a lot of the stuff from early on in the season, mm. whilst also being kind of quietly devastating Yeah. To, to Wade. Like, his world is falling apart here. Yeah. It, yeah, it, 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 it reminded it, me of The Leftovers, you know, or like, a, I don't know, this kind of thing that like this is so core to your character and we are gonna have to rip this band-aid off and it's gonna really fucking hurt but you know we yeah. feel it's necessary he, so, he says yeah, how but... he and judd assumed control of both sides to make a piece so like arranging for judd i guess the implication there is that on the 
the White Knight. Or maybe the White Knight was before Keen rocked up, but maybe it isn't. Maybe he orchestrated the White Knight and, like, they deliberately left Judd alive so that, you know, he then think, becomes the, the most fact. senior officer because they make a point how he was, like, only a captain when it happened and then he becomes the, the chief. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the fact that Keen was the person who passed the law in the wake would imply that he had some kind of yeah, create a crisis of... so that you can pass this because you know they mentioned how there were three survivors or whatever and we we don't know who the third is and maybe we'll never know but like yeah angela there was something weird going on there where she was dead to rights and then survived it so i assume we'll find out what happened there but then yeah judd being the other one like was he deliberately left alive? Was he faking any injuries he had? Um, you know, all of that stuff. So that, yeah, Judd seems to control the police. Keen is in charge of the 7K. And yeah, it's kind of a... <laughs> it's kind of a non-super genius version of what Ozymandias did in a way, where, like, there is a volatile situation happening here. So we've, we've assumed control of both sides to create a peace or whatever. And yeah, and it harkens back to... I mean... It's going to be revealed in the next episode, but I mentioned some of the PTpedia back matter was like Keen sent Judd a letter, and there was clearly some secret society shit going on with like a, a logo with a single eye on it, which will be revealed next episode. But they are clearly in some kind of clandestine network, and they have assumed both sides of this situation to calm it down. It's fun. He's really it's... good here. Like I don't. It's not that the senator wasn't good before. But I think he kills it in this scene. Yeah, no, James James Walk's always really good, but we'll leave that there. But there are two fantastic things left in this scene. The first is, of course, Squid Pro Quo, which is just a, a fantastic piece of wordplay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because the senator kind of comes to Wade and says, I want you to string Angela up, like get her pegged for the murder of Judd, because Laurie already thinks that that's the case, mm -hmm. and we think that you've got the information that can kind of just push this over the edge. Mm -hmm. Are they, and like, nervous about, like, Angela is sort of scratching around at revealing some stuff that they'd rather weren't revealed? Like, with the KKK thing or anything? Or I mean, they're definitely, they're definitely nervous about something to do with Angela. Yes. But, but what that is may or may not be revealed in a future episode. Ooh. But the other important part of this is in exchange for this information, yeah. oh they show him the video that Veidt recorded for yes. Pres President Robert Redford in 1985 that basically spells out the entire thing. Yeah. And this... I, I predict you will be elected seven years from today and, and welcome to office and here's everything I did. And yeah, he arranged for all of it, like beyond just the squid and all of that. Like I said, like the, he is labelled like a political kingmaker or whatever in some of the articles written about him. And yeah, he very literally orchestrated it so that Robert Redford... He predicted the candidate. Oh, it is announced in, in the comic, isn't it? In 1985 that Redford is thinking about running, isn't it? But yeah, he, he predicted all of this and, and when he would be elected and, and the whole lot. And it's... Yeah, they, they mention this relationship between Ozymandias and Robert Redford that becomes strained at some point and... Yeah, it's it's wild shit, and and the seven K, you know, you write them off as people who are just believing this the conspiracy theories of Rorschach, who is, you know, objectively a lunatic. But no, they are in possession, or at least Keen is in possession of evidence beyond Rorschach's that it's all bullshit, and it's like it kind of gives a bit of a twist on the whole seven K outlook you know like you write them off i mean they very clearly are racist he calls them you know these idiot racists or whatever but they they have a point 
<laughs> they they potentially know for sure. Yeah, it's it's a hell of a lot of stuff to chew on in that. Like, how much of the government knows? Because obviously, Joe Keane joins one particular branch of government that he wasn't particularly keen on joining, and then finds mm. this videotape he's shown as this induction, which yes. seems insane that they would just kind of go, like, right, random senator who's joined this department, you've got to watch this video to understand the context behind everything that we do. Yeah. We saw that thing with Laurie, uh, the, the interview where she demands to speak to someone in charge because she's going to start saying things uh, and that gets her out of prison and her job in the FBI or whatever. But yeah, wild that like, the whole government know and uh, they're just operating. Yeah, uh, but then also that they can let a tape be made of it. Like This isn't the most closely guarded secret because it could completely destroy. All the fact that there are Republican senators who aren't shouting it from the rooftops. That's what I was going to say, that, like, both sides, through two administrations, like, I mean, it's helpful that you can be president for, like, seven terms and all that bullshit, but, like, the idea that, like, two opposite political parties have been in office and however many senators and and elected officials, and they realise it's bigger than politics or whatever, but, yeah, a a wild thing to do and like to sit him in front of the big bank of monitors and everything which is you know very evocative of Ozzy sitting in his chair watching all of his monitors in the book yeah but we also get the kind of as you said with the the Judd news this is the first inklings you get like obviously he's been playing in the background but these two episodes combined kind of come together for a very strong the cops aren't unimpeachable Mm. like you've already seen it with Angela being quite trigger happy and the cops being quite violent and and abusing their rights but i think we get down even more in these two episodes into there is no difference between the seventh calvary and and the cops and even more so in the next one but the fact that people were coming out and thinking the show was pro cop to start with yeah just by feature (laughs) just because the the protagonist of the show is ostensibly a cop is but then they spend most of the episodes criticizing her and her friends Yes, yeah. we get the obligatory fight scene immediately after this, which mm. we'll cover at the end of this one, just because there is no fight scene in episode six mm. for very good reason. Yeah. So we have kind of Wade uh, like doing less well at his job, and then kind of he he goes back to the police offices. He has the conversation with Angela about what the pills are, but he does it very openly in front of the cactus, allowing yes. Laurie to bust in, trying to arrest Angela. Angela just downs all the nostalgia pills, which we find out in Back Matter that you're not supposed to take someone else's nostalgia. They no, make... an extreme number of side effects, <laughs> including anal leaking, which is yeah. fun. Yeah, uh, uh, but also it's, it's, it's someone else's undistilled memories. So she has literally ingested all of her grandfather's memories, mm. or the, all, all the, the ones, ones that he's chosen. Important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that was something we left out earlier with uh, the conversation between Wade and his ex is that she identifies them as as nostalgia, and she said that these cause psychosis in pill form and and whatever. And they're uh, banned, and they don't sell them anymore. Yes. And why on earth would this guy have them? Although obviously we found out last episode that Will is working with Lady True, so obviously they're still producing them, but. Mm. for specific reasons well that led me to wonder is the little IV drip that her daughter is on is that essentially liquid nostalgia because she but said then whose she, memories would she be injected into her her own I think she's a clone of Lady True and she's basically raising her to be herself almost that's my current theory because you know she said about well, surely how, she'd give her her name rather than her mother's name alright maybe it's her mother then either way yeah like 
But we don't know Lady True's name. She chose her name at five. Is another thing we learned. <laughs> Isn't her name Lady? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, like, because she said how she had a dream that she was running and her feet hurt. And it's like, I think you were having a memory that you were running. So you have that very real sensation that your feet hurt. But that's all just speculation for the future. <laughs> it, is, it is all speculation. Yeah, the episode ends. Angela's t- taken away. She's about to have a very bad trip, which uh, will encompass the entirety of episode six. <laughs> but meanwhile, Wade goes home. He throws the new box of the EDS stuff that was th- delivered to him in the trash. So after spending God knows how much money on it, throws it away before changing his mind and heading inside. Not before the 7th <laughs> Cavalry truck pulls up outside the house, By armed with many, many weapons. <laughs> By and, it to <laughs> Another little thing. A couple of the cops, when they're walking around the precinct, one of them says, I'm telling you, Hooded Justice is Dr. Manhattan. Which... <laughs> Obviously a sensational line, but also one that gets much funnier when you reveal who Hooded Justice actually is and how that person claimed they were Dr. Manhattan earlier in this show. Yes. (laughs) I also think it was pretty extreme. Like, obviously, Angela has obstructed the course of justice but to like pull multiple guns on her and treat her like she's like a giant terrorist murderer person I thought was a tiny bit extreme, but... I think Laurie she's is dangerous. Like she is, she well. is someone who could probably punch every single police officer in there in the face and get away. Yeah, probably, <laughs> but not Laurie. <laughs> not Laurie. Yeah, it's all that's all really really good stuff. I also like in the the PTpedia for this. Petey's talking about American Hero Story, and he 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 just casually mentions how um, Sally, Laurie's mom, did a one woman show towards the end of her life, <laughs> and that there's a fantastic drag act version of it that he strongly <laughs> recommends. Just, you know, just revealing some stuff about the social life of, of Agent Dale PT, maybe. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> right, so, Vite, Adrian Vite, what's he up to this week? So, <laughs> he makes another suit, a better looking one that looks safer, and gets strapped into it, and he flings himself through the skyline, uh, through the cloud, like we saw them doing with the corpses, and this time... As you hinted at, he emerges from the cloudfall and he's on a moon of, I assume, Mars, given... He is on a moon of Jupiter. He's on Europa. Okay. I assumed it was a moon of Mars. Okay. Uh, Yes, he is is in space. He is not in a little English manor somewhere on Earth. This is why no one can find him. And, yeah, he, he spells out, save me, and then we can't see the rest. It definitely starts with a D. I assume it is save me, Dan. Spelled out with the corpses of the various Phillipses and Crookshanks that he's launched through this catapult. And I am inclined to believe that given what a genius Ozzy is, he calculated exactly how many he would need to spell this out effectively. (laughs) And yeah, then a satellite spots him and he gets yanked back into the bubble where the game warden arrests him. Is the game warden another Phillips? Yes. Okay, right. And he says how your god has abandoned you, and they all agree. But I now take this to be, Dr. Manhattan said he might go and try and make some life for his of his own or whatever. Because he says, while I am your master, I am definitely not your maker. And he might just be being, like, metaphorical here and saying that, like, God created the human race. And even if I have cloned you, you know, I didn't make... I don't know. But So I took it to potentially mean that Dr. Manhattan came here had a little experiment with making life, got bored, wandered off, and at some point has decided, actually, Ozymandias does deserve to be in a prison, and just left him here under the watch of one of his people he made. And Ozzy is carefully co-opting 
you know, doing what he can to escape and get noticed by this satellite that I assume is owned by Lady True. That's... How does the horseshoe play into it? Oh, the horseshoe, not the knife. Um, because... <laughs> he rides horses around i don't fucking know <laughs> i did know that uh i didn't know this but i i i actually can't even remember how i came across it the name of his horse is uh the same name as alexander the great's horse so that's fun mm. uh, as he loves him <laughs> he yeah is, i have no he clue is what's quite happening. Full of himself he is i have no clue what's happening with this horse knife thing the horseshoes they keep trying to give him but i guess i'll find out at some point and i assume that d is dan because he always calls dr manhattan john not not Dr. Manhattan, so... Okay, okay. Um, D, you know, Dan, Dr. Manhattan, mm-hmm. Dale P.T., I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it's Dale P.T. Or maybe uh, Lady True's actually got a name that we don't know about, but no, she chose her name at five, and it's 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 Lady True. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll have more to discuss on this next week. Okay. I look forward to it, the ongoing yeah. adventures of Jeremy Irons. You know, I said how, like, <laughs> you know, there's no way he understands any of what he's saying. But to now put him in a fucking spacesuit and have him pretend he's on a moon and, like, falling to his knees and, and yeah, just all of that. It's like, what the shit does this man make of any of this? Well, it's so much fun, though. And you can tell yeah. he is having fun doing it, which yeah. I think is the important I mean, there's, part. There is a 0% chance he's done it before. <laughs> so... <laughs> An actor like that who has been around, like, I am sure he is seeking new experiences. And Damon Lindelof's like, I got you covered. Right. But <laughs> big one. that's prestige episode. That's the end of episode five. This is episode six. This extraordinary being, written by Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson, very noticeably an African American writer, uh, because you kind of do need an African American writer for this one, directed by Stephen Williams, again, another African American behind the wheel of this episode, because I think da- even Damon isn't, like, this isn't the, the sole episode of the season that Damon has no finger in. That comes up next, but I think. Damon Lindelof was very aware that he needed to have African-American voices oh, yeah. uh, on on the page for this episode, even though they had made the choice to hire kind of like a 50-50 writer's room of like 50 white, 50, 50% people of colour. Mm. But yeah, this episode opens with a scene from American Hero Story, which is going to play very differently in comparison to everything else in this episode as we get uh, two cops trying to get the Hooded Justice to go steal some photos that have Nelson Gardner sleeping with J. Edgar Hoover. Metropolis is trying to blackmail Director Hoover because he has a tape of someone who looks vaguely like him, but it's definitely yeah. not him because he's not a pervert. It's like, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, the entire thing is that, like, idea that... Yeah. I, do, I do, Like, the final line to that is, I kind of like, Nelson is cheating on me with, like, the head of the FBI, no less, or yeah. whatever, which is... So melodramatic. And, like, they get him to take his mask off, and he's a white dude. Giant uh, Jackson, who most notably is from Glee in American Horror Story. Okay. So, bring uh, that full circle. And they say, say cheese. And then after his wanton acts of violence, he says, cheese. And it's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> like, you've yeah. nailed what you're going for here. <laughs> it is mentioned that Hooded Justice is the only one that never unmasked. It's the, you know, the, the one, only one that refused this order to unmask and, and, and give up his identity and everything. So, they are very clearly taking a different stance on it here but yeah it's it's fun and you think that this should have been all the clue i needed that <laughs> the big reveal in this fucking episode you're a psychopath <laughs> so we pan out of the tv screen watching this episode i like that all the cops in the tv show are watching this show like this is the water cooler tv show of the moment oh yeah 
obviously everyone's obsessed with it. Agent Petey is not very happy with anyone else watching this. No. <laughs> uh, but uh, Angela's in a jail cell. She is not well, and Agent Blake needs her to sign a release so that they can pump her stomach. But sadly, before Angela has the kind of cognitive wherewithal to do it, she falls into a black and white coma where she's a cop in the she's 1940s. tripping balls. It comes in very subtly as well. Like, she is seeing the world normally, and then there's like a black and white person drumming in a corner and it starts creeping in and i love that about it it happens throughout where like there are things happening in the background that no one in the foreground can acknowledge or see or anything um because it you know it's it's memories so it is it does have a less than uh strictly realistic vibe to it and but just the way they execute it i think throughout is is, is incredible like stuff happening we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to them but. yeah i mean I, there's so much i think one of the things we should talk about at the top is just how technically proficient this entire episode is there's oh, a yeah. lot of long one take shots where Giovanna depo is playing the young Willem here he knows we played the son of regina king on the leftovers so we get a, a nice kind of cast reunion it's the only one sadly mm. kind of combining the two casts but it is a a fun twist in having the son on one show play the grandfather on another. Yeah, I said to you, like, I wonder if this has ever happened where one actor has played a generation above and a generation below another actor in two different things. Yeah, a really fun thing. And like, I didn't even pick up on it at first because obviously it's like five years later and he's grown up a bit. And but yeah, he he crushes it here. Like, he's so good. And the the one continuous shots of just the two of them probably having to subbing out for each other, where one of them is probably standing just off camera and they're kind of having to come in and cover the other one's scenes, are done so seamlessly and so flawlessly that... Yeah, this is, like, so far beyond anything I've seen in a Lindelof property before. Like, this, this is getting into, like, some of the... You know, like, Legion does a little bit of this, and, like, you see this in some films, and, like... American Gods tried to do some of this, but wasn't as good of a show around the rest of it. But, you know, trying to do these sort of surreal, highly technical, almost like a play. But, yeah, you know, you go see plays and they do some, like, really impressive shit with, with the production there. Where, like, oh, how did they how did they pull that off? And, yeah, like, trying to do these oneers and these, these things where, like, doors are appearing. And, and yeah, it's... It's crazy. It's a crazy Yeah, everything, crazy everything is so seamless. Like, I think one of my favourite ones is a little bit later on the episode, but when he walks out of the police station and then the door he walks out of is just hanging in the middle of the street because yeah. we don't need to know the connective tissue behind yeah. him walking for, to this particular street. In his memory, he doesn't remember. This is the next major thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Like, throughout, this is a... This is a towering technical achievement of this show. And I like we're not talked about Emmys yet. The show won't be eligible for the Emmys until September time. But you kind of sit there and go, like, well, this show needs to be like Regina King probably needs to win the Emmy for lead actress in a in a miniseries and mm. they need to win technical or like a directing award or something like that. I think this show probably will end up sweeping this year unless something incredible happens in the next couple of months but we'll see what happens there but this episode is definitely at the forefront of that kind of conversation yeah uh but in the middle of this angela is kind of we're swapping between angela and will there's no real rhyme or reason to it it just really helps i i love that you can tell when it's angela when she's wearing the mask later on as well because she has such distinct eyes yeah 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 (laughs) i like and that shot when like 
he's looking in a mirror and it's her reflection and stuff like that. That's, yeah. that's really powerful. It's all great. But in this scene, they're obviously kind of welcoming the new class of cops and the wheel is skipped over by the white commander and a black, <laughs> a black officer kind of comes over and pins the badge on him, kind of congratulates him. This in the in your face racism of the police in New York of the 1940s. Don't worry, it's all been fixed. The cops aren't racist now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then as a kind of final warning, this officer who Will was influenced by to join whispers in his ear and goes like, beware the Cyclops. Yes. And this is when I started putting some of this together where like, you know, in a minute we'll see one of the white off when they're basically gaslighting Will and, and like, well, like, they start and then they're like, oh no, we need to, I'll take him away. And then like he does this little gesture where he puts like a one eye to his head. And it's like, okay, right. So the Cyclops is this organization that, or this, because he talks about this. Will said the exact phrase. It was like, you know, a vast and insidious conspiracy or whatever. And he, he says it again later in this episode. And that this becomes his obsession. It's this Cyclops, like, clandestine society that, like, clearly massively racist, an offshoot of the KKK, potentially, and in the present, Judd and Keen are members of it and that is that symbol that is in uh, in the letter from uh, Keen to Judd and yeah it starts making a heck of a lot of sense uh, everything yeah. that's been happening <laughs> it is also kind of the one major plot point that feels very similar to Minutemen yeah in that in Minutemen it's Silhouette who's kind of wanting to do real work we're going to look after a pedophile ring mm-hmm. do some real real superheroics rather than just beating up costume supervillains yeah. uh, and in this they kind of invert that with it's it's will and hooded justice who are so much more invested in actually taking on systemic issues rather than moloch the mysterious or yes. whatever captain metropolis says later yeah and Cap- uh, captain axis and yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's the big fucking reveal here that will is fucking hooded justice <laughs> a a character that has been drawn white yeah and and I believe is said to have a German accent at some point, and it's it's cute what they do. Like he paints the white strip over his eyes so that he looks like he's a white person, and it's sort of mirroring what Angela does with the black strip, but with a very different connotation. So that's how they cutely get around that fact. And then I was all I was sort of waiting for him to at some point be like, and I have to disguise my voice and start doing a German accent. But like you know, they made the choice; it makes it more powerful to see it this way it probably would have been a bit hammy to see him trying to attempt this action yeah and i i think they do attempt some other stuff like um, that i thought it was a really nice touch in episode two that they have the note fall down from like the world war one german propaganda towards black soldiers yeah and i was like oh that's a really clean in-universe explanation for why night owl might have heard hooded justice express some positive thoughts towards the germans yes like that, that maybe maybe he, missed, maybe he misheard and and like he was actually praising what the Germans did in like nineteen the nineteen twenties nineteen tens and became and is was kind of disparaging what Nazi Germany had become because Will in this episode is very noticeably anti what the Nazis are doing yes. uh, in that you see him kind of like looking disgustedly at newspaper clippings of what's happening in Nazi Germany yeah that's all that's but, all very fair that, that yeah it, it's yeah it's like a clean way of kind of going like here's where the german heritage comes from is that this guy the one thing he has left from his parents is a german propaganda leaflet aimed at african-americans that has a note from his parents in that he's probably absorbed and reabsorbed and Mm. over time and maybe has some kind of false 
positive things to say. Yeah, it's like all he has about... with his parents. Before they reveal that this dude is in the Cyclops thing, I was like waiting for him to be like, oh, I'm Hollis, Hollis Mason, or something like that. <laughs> uh, that dude has a real racist face as well. Some people are unfortunately very well cast as racist because we see this scene where ugh, well like it's, it, I'm getting ahead like they, they have a little scene with him and his wife and like this is yeah like they're, 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 where... they're dating she's a journalist yes. she's the girl who he kind of picks up from from the, the, the wreckage in 1921 they've obviously made their way over to bit creepy in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> if you actively remember your wife as a baby, that's a little bit creepy. In my opinion. I mean, he was he was five. She was probably around one. There's only a four year age difference. But, uh, but like, I, I like I like that she psychoanalyzes him and is just like, you're an incredibly angry person. Like, you're not angry in the way that we kind of like normally ascribe to it. But there is obviously just a deep well of anger yeah. in you that he like, nah, actively that... suppresses and he says I don't want to live in the past while in the background we see moments of the uh, the Black Wall Street massacre happening in the background of, of this bar or wherever they are and, and she's like that's your problem is that you don't want to live in the past almost and like yeah, you, always... you don't want to talk about it you don't want to acknowledge it yeah. you don't want to psychoanalyze like what's going on there you just want to yeah. bury it and, and lash then... out in and then what voice. happens? He spends the remainder of his life very much focusing on the past. Yes. <laughs> Being in tune with his anger, uh, which we'll see. Uh, this scene, the lynching, from first person, is so fucking powerful. Like, to do it that way, to, to have the camera be Will for a moment. And, like, when they let him down, it's like, you know, it's just a warning or whatever. And it's Regina King now reacting to it. Her reaction to it is so viscerally like like you feel it like how painful and uncomfortable and, and traumatizing that is and they just crush this whole scene yeah no that, again the, this is probably it's not my favorite episode of the season that that's coming but this is the one that got the most critical attention and you can absolutely 100 percent see why mm. i think the episode that coming up that i prefer is very much to my personal aesthetics but i can't deny that this episode is a total powerhouse and absolutely achieves everything it sets up to do yeah which it, is, it, I, it's the big i don't mean this as a negative it's the big wanky episode it's the big awards quarter like it deserves awards because like they've set out to do something bigger than a normal episode of television and you know i I don't know if it's my favourite episode of the show so far. I, I, I will probably have to reflect on all of them afterwards, but like I haven't seen anything like this, you know? No, it's a hugely triumphant episode of television, even whilst being incredibly dark and shining a light on stuff that probably not enough things kind of shine a light on. And it's only as we've kind of been putting people of colour and people of marginalised communities in writers' rooms and in creative discussions that we're starting to get these yeah. kind of things that feel yeah. like they're actually using this this very dark history that exists around the world for positive light and it's yeah. kind of sad that we haven't had anything like this in the uk yeah and i'm like so we, i'm we, so fucking sick of you hear these people that like they would claim they're not racist but they'll be like 
oh what or, or sexist and it's like you know complaining about forced diversity on like a on like a board or a team or a like oh why does there have to be a woman there and everything it's like because you get things like this you need other perspectives you need like other voices and life experiences we can't just keep I mean, writing uh, the same 12 white person stories yeah. the fact that there are actual clinical studies that say if you watch more media featuring people who do not look like you you become less racist less sexist less homophobic and all these different things like the entire issue is that there are a group of people out there who are trying to cut the ability for people to empathize with people who are other to them yeah from existing yeah and this kind of art only exists when you fully embrace the idea that there are people other to you with other stories to tell and 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 you hear it as like you know what can i do it's like find as many women writers and black writers and hispanic writers and and gay writers like read things that are written by people who are not like yourself like that is the most powerful thing i think you can do to try because you know we can't you can't just argue a racist into not being racist anymore but like you can broaden your own understandings of things you know yeah yeah and like we wouldn't have seen this out of a white writer's room like this is this is a unique thing and and it's very powerful and it was it was a joy to watch yeah and and it's from here we kind of get one of my favorite things is earlier on the episode like after after he's seen the person throw the Molotov cocktail at the Jewish storefront, which yes. is very on the nose, yes. uh, he, he runs into the newspaper man who's got a copy of Action Comics number one, and we get oh these yeah flashes. yeah the Superman Superman get... exists in the Watchmen universe, but as yes. a fictional character, <laughs> uh, and we get these references to to Will escaping Tulsa, and they're very on the nose, kind of cutting between he's put into a rocket by his parents to escape from an exploding planet, and they're very explicitly mm. making. And will he's the first be... superhero and this that, and the yeah, other. He yeah. is the Superman. Like, yes, this universe does have Superman in that it's got Doctor Manhattan, but mm-hmm. Hooded Justice is this universe Superman, and that's very important. Yeah. That as the episode goes on, the first original superhero in this universe is a black bisexual man yeah. who is incredibly angry about the racial prejudice and the racial violence that he's experienced in his life. Yeah. And so, in his first moment of lashing out, he goes into an alleyway, finds a couple. Which well, potentially, yeah, potentially yeah. is a reference to the Waynes. Potentially, yes. And he, you know, he still has the noose around his neck, and he has the hood they put over his head in his hands. So it's like a, it's a circumstantial costume. He didn't sit there and try and craft this outfit around this. It's it, it like it happened very organically the first time, and then it, you know, it will become a conscious choice and like it restores the character design to look because like that was the thing i was always like hooded justice the white character in watchmen slash minutemen looks evocative of john henry the the uh, the dc character who is very much meant to be based on like slave folklore of this of this man that like kills racists and it's like it's sort of restoring it to that connotation instead of the like medieval white hangman character and it's 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 so clever and like it, it all fits so neatly together yeah it does exactly what alan moore does with his works that kind of reference older works like this is damon doing what alan moore did to swamp thing or to marvel man or to the leave extraordinary gentleman like he is taking stuff and not contradicting them but finding a new angle that makes them more interesting and more textually relevant to the world and society that we live in nowadays and i think this is like maybe maybe alan moore would enjoy the entire show just because of what it means to him but this change here feels so much 
in the spirit of what Alan Moore does, mm-hmm. that I have to imagine that he would potentially be impressed. But we can't talk for it because of obviously the negative emotions are associated with it. But mm-hmm. this is the most Alan Moore moment. Like if we're talking about episode five being the most leftovers like episode, this is the most Alan Moore-esque episode that the show does. Yeah. Like this, this is a piece of structure as well. It feels so totally put together yeah this this couldn't have been a minute shorter or a minute longer it was all exactly planned to the second yeah. if and, it probably wasn't but it feels that way it's so meticulous yeah. and the fact that it's the only episode of the show to not feature adrian bite mm. is incredibly noticeable as well like there is an episode that, that kind of has to shoehorn him in <laughs> in a way that feels inelegant do you think at one point they they set out right there are nine episodes there are nine adrian bite scenes and then they're like, oh, we can't put him in here, so they have to shove him somewhere else? Or, yeah, it yeah. does vaguely feel like that, and it's probably my major bugbear with with kind of, like, comparing this. But it, in the exchange, you get this kind of very crystallised episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he goes home to June, and is very much like, yeah, I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are, my friend. And this hood. He falls asleep, sleeps for a long time, mm-hmm. it seems like, because June has time to go to work and come back, and the papers have been released, and his story of him saving the the assumed universe version of the Waynes from being beaten up <laughs> yeah. have kind of like latched onto it, and we get the birth of the of the superheroes. Yes. In this in this universe where we know that this goes to Hollis Mason putting mm-hmm. on the Night Owl outfit and everything else that kind of flows from there. Yeah. The first costumed hero, everyone else is inspired by him. You know, Captain Metropolis wants to put the team together because of him and all of this. Uh, I also like they're having this moment, they're talking and he's describing the events of the silent film from the very first scene in the whole show. And while he's describing it, it's playing on the wall behind them. Yeah, again, just I love that kind of cutesy theatre type shit. All about it. And seeing, as I said, King's face in the mirror when he's putting the stripe on. And later on, we'll see the shot where like he dives through the window and it freeze frames and pans around. And it's her eyes at that point. All, all very, very powerful. So obviously Will's kind of gone, I can't trust the police anymore. He was told to start asking questions after they let free the man who who burned down the Jewish store earlier. Mm-hmm. Obviously he got lynched by a whole load of officers. So he kind of just takes to following around this guy uh, to see where he's going, because obviously he doesn't trust... He, he got let free for a reason, so let's find out where he goes mm-hmm. and ends up pulling him to a warehouse where he just goes in and beats up a load of Nazis and KKK operatives. It's great, and I, I love that shot of, of him slash her frozen in the air, panning around and like you get Laurie approaching her and, and, you know, like, trying to get through to her, and they've given her a shot of adrenaline, and you see these little spots of colour starting to return around Laurie, and, and Angela is vaguely able to, like, blink to acknowledge that, like, she can hear her and stuff, but then it resumes again, and yeah, it, it's it's a nice little moment, like, a nice little reminding you of what the situation is. Like, this is almost where, like, there's no ads in HBO shows, obviously, but, like, it feels like a lot of TV is written with commercial breaks in mind and like this would potentially be one where it's like oh let's reframe the story in case anyone's just come in at this point or whatever yeah yeah Uh, we also get will finds like a map of the united states and some kind of hint that there's something more insidious going on here i think this is where he finds out like there's a vast and insidious conspiracy because he sees the map yes with a whole lot of the world and i like the kind of recontextualization of the the fight scene in the store where we've already seen it done oh yeah, yeah. in an episode of minutemen but we get to see the actual true version of events which is 
he doesn't mean to be in the store. He no. just, he does, and he's not busting up a robbery. He just comes in there because in the back were a bunch of KKK people, and the person who he's been following around is there with a shotgun who just takes aim at him and shoots at him, which. Yeah. Again, it's very different to the sanitized version of events, or yeah. which is somehow more violent, but <laughs> more ridiculous. Yeah, and I think with all of this, I really like the idea again that like it takes this character that pre-existed, that was angry as hell for no reason, and they like used that anger. Other people have used that anger. Darwin Cook takes that anger and like infers that like he is an evil man or whatever, and they instead retroactively fit the reason for all this anger onto him and that it all makes sense and like it's all this black wall street trauma and everything and like yeah it was just so clever that they they've it it works it's not a twist in that it like completely changes and there's no way you could have known it's like it works if you go backwards everything will still fit into place for the most yeah. part um, i also like that they managed to like they still managed to foreground cal's relationship with angela in this episode yes by having him be the person who kind of fails to, to bring her out of it. But it's a nice moment to go, like, who would you get to break someone out of this? Like, yeah. Agent Blake is going to do it. It's going to be their husband, this person who they've been with for yeah. God knows how long, and kind of reinforces relationships and romance, which yeah. is a nice touch. Speaking of relationships and romance... Yes. Nelson Gardner shows up at the home of Will Reeves, <laughs> asks him... He's he's kind of like traced through how like where the crimes are, that Hood Justice are involved in stopping are and comparing them to beat cop alleyways and he kind of goes like right that means that Will Reeves is must be the person feeding Hood Justice information because he can't be black. <laughs> of course, he, he later on admits that like oh no I figured it out the moment I saw you but he definitely went into that room with the kind of racist connotation that. This man can't be black. He's working with a black yeah. police officer. Here's this Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> yeah, and then they sure do fuck, don't they? Um, they sure do fuck. I, I love that in the background of all of this, you have June kind of telling him, like, no, he doesn't want to join, or no, he will not help Hoodie Justice join any kind of secret organization yeah. called the Minutemen that you want to be involved in. And then you cut immediately from her telling Will no to. Nelson shouting, yes! And like, throughout that scene, they have eyes locked on each other and almost ignoring her, and it's interesting, it's like, I don't know, it's it's sort of just, it goes without any need to delve in, I feel some shows would feel some kind of need to, like, layer in his bisexuality earlier, or, like, give a reason for it, and instead it is just like, hey, he met this guy and he wants to fuck him, and he did, and it's like, yeah, that's, we don't need to make a song and dance about the fact that this guy is, is a bisexual person. It is treated as a very normal and natural thing, and it yeah, is. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't done the kind of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yeah. they're gonna have one of the characters come out and have it be the point of the entire episode. Like, those things are important and should exist, yeah. but for the storytelling of this show, we don't need to have the 10 minute scene where he sits down and goes like, I have a wife who I love and mm. I've loved her since we were children and we're going to have a child together. Yeah. But I also very much like this blonde German God who's walked into my life and I can't decide. And yes, yeah. like you have, there's obviously kind of like, he's not a good person. He is cheating on his wife. Yeah, yeah. He is, he is doing this and Nelson Gardner is not a good person like the entire scene keep of your costume having sex, on the whole time like the others aren't yeah. as tolerant as me and they'll never know how beautiful you are <laughs> yeah it's just dripping in kind of like I'm gonna say these things to to hide your blackness yes 
Which even before then, he is hiding his blackness, and even down to the point where like he puts on his little dominant mask and is like, oh, you should keep yours on too. Yeah, next time. Ignoring the fact that his mask is his entire fucking face. Yeah, it's all it's... very steeped in like shame and, and like subtle racism and, and stuff like that. But Even even down to kind of like, we, we get a kind of jump forward after this in that we cut through a lot of June's pregnancy and Will creating a dossier for Cyclops that he's doing in the background, and when he tries to get yeah. them to announce it at this first yeah kind of like, like this recreation of the out. famous photo the famous press conference almost uh, of the Minutemen all being assembled together and he tries to give his he says yeah there's a vast and insidious conspiracy and Nelson just cuts him off it's yeah like, it's Moloch it's Moloch not racists yes. we're not going to touch racist we don't do politics here yes um, and there is that racist cartoon with Dollar Bill and the one thing that I do actually have a genuine, like, minor complaint about is there is not a whiff of the Sally stuff. Mm. And she's obviously physically there. There is an actress who is pretending to be Sally there. Or... And I realised that, like, it would potentially distract from the most powerful part of the story you're telling. But when you have Laurie in play as a regular on your show, and her mother is right there, and there was a romantic link between the two, even if it was fake... I just think there, there could have been, like, a line, a scene, a something with that. Because it's in the PTpedia stuff, where she says, fun fact, for a while I thought Hood of Justice was my father. And it's like, I, I feel that that was money left on the table, almost. I don't think it ruins yeah. anything, it's just, it's the one thing I would have liked to see them do more with. I would wonder if that would be something they would try and do if the season was longer. Maybe. Like, if they had an additional episode, but it's also... That ground has been trod by the book. Like, there's no need to no, cover that stuff again. But I just... I uh, yeah, I, I, I can see wanting a line or a reference or a hat tip towards it, especially when yeah. he does have a wife. And Yeah, that's the other part, is, like, they feel the need to, like, be like, oh, no, no, we have, we have to throw people off the scent that you're secretly gay. It's like, but he's not gay, he's bisexual, and he has a wife. <laughs> but yeah. then, like, you would have to reveal who he really is to get to that. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's it is there. There are a lot of layers there, but obviously the the kind of the show starts to double down on two parts of this. In that we get, we see Will and June's son growing older, and he becomes more and more interested in his father as he's kind of getting dressed. Like his mm. father is isn't hiding the fact that he's a superhero. I found that kind of wild that he's just openly doing this in front of the kid, and like, how do you stop a kid from like, blabbing to all of his friends? My dad's heard of justice. <laughs> I guess yeah. no one would believe him because. He's black. black. Yeah, but, but we also get <laughs> yeah, we also get these kind of horrific acts of violence are happening where oh, a cinema a cinema full of black people is hypnotized into basically tearing Marrying each other apart. Yeah. To spread uh, this this very fake notion that black people are inherently savages and violent and like, you know, creating the situation so that they can react to it, I guess is what they're going for here. And this cop when he gets there and he's like, Oh good, you're here, like He's like, there are a bunch of animals, and like, we need someone who speaks their language when Will's going to go in. And it's like, Will doesn't really react to that in the moment. And it's like, that shows you just like, this is so everyday life that like, yeah. it's not even worth reacting to because it's just it's so baked in. Like, you can't fight every battle. And it's just like. It's the, it's the double meaning of it in like, oh, thank God you're here. There's a bunch of animals. And you know it's going to be some kind of racially motivated thing. And you think it's going to be people still wanting to fight, people that have to be held back, like some yeah. kind of riot going on, maybe for a good reason. And then they go inside and it's just dead bodies everywhere. Yeah, and like and one it's... very traumatized woman. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's like, what on earth do you mean animals? These are people who have died, yeah. and you're viewing them as, as less than. And she tells the story yeah. of like what happened. and She got Tyler Durden. <laughs> Will goes outside and sees people loading something from the back of the cinema into a truck. Yeah. And goes to follow them to to a warehouse yeah. where he tries to get Nelson to come along with him and help him break this up. Like he doesn't want to do this alone. He wants superheroes. He wants them to do something political. And Nelson's just like, "Oh, that's not for us. <laughs> that's not for us. This is so ridiculous. You want us to believe that someone is using hypnotism and mind control to make black people fight each other for some kind of <laughs> racial conspiracy? Come over to my house so we can fuck." <laughs> In a show where we'll, there will later be a literal god walking the earth, ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like a it's a film projector, like a fancy one that is like embedding subliminal messages. You see them recording some of them. There's, like, a book about... It's, like, mesmerism or something, um, which, you know, I guess, like, occult hypnosis or whatever, because, you know, the clan has its origins that, like, there is, like, a some kind of weird, dark religious undertone with it, like, you know, calling the leaders the Grand Dragon and all this shit, like, and, you know, it makes sense that they've got their fingers in the police as well, not just because, like we know the police is, like, an institutionally racist thing, but, like, you think about the origins of the police in America and how they were essentially slave catchers, and it's like, yeah, this fucking makes sense that they would be able to, like, embed in this network. Yeah, and, like, he murders the shit out of all of them, burns them, puts them all in a big pile, but he keeps the projector for himself. Yeah, I... Um, This this scene is brutal. Like, he kills... Like, I love the touch of the guy who he's kept on having these run-ins throughout the entire episode, like Glenn Flashler, as we said earlier, seeing him in his police uniform outside in the in the phone box, and he kind of starts going like, oh, come inside, we'll we'll show you around, we'll get you inducted into this, like, or maybe we'll just kill you. Like, it's, it's hard to say whether or not he's being facetious or not. And then the final touch of that is him kind of going like, hey, do I know you, all you racial epithet look the same to me yes. and then we'll just shoot him in the fucking face it's yeah. like oh you don't even remember me you are the person who led to me being lynched you are the person who's destroyed my faith in the police as an organization you are someone who i have now unleashed my fury onto the world through hooded justice yeah. and uh, you I'm either don't have done. the decency to remember me or you're like so not afraid of me because you think i'm like some kind of joke or a, or a, an animal in the zoo or whatever that like you feel comfortable enough to say this shit to my face and yeah, yeah. when that happened sass was like good for you so <laughs> like, yeah shoot racists in the face yeah shoots uh, in the face and then just this incredibly brutal scene of them walking through and just yeah. it's so cleanly done in that he just there's no second thoughts it's all mm. mostly done in a one yeah and and the final payoff to the scene with the guy recording the messages over and over again saying like talking about what the black people should do to each other, but never harm white people, never harm white people, they're above reproach. <laughs> and the gun's empty, so he just chucks him out with... Yeah, I love that <laughs> moment when he's just behind him and, like, you're waiting for it. And, like, we've seen him, you know, being angry and using his fists and everything, but then, like, adding the gun element to it, and ostensibly these being the first people he's shot with a gun before, it's, yeah, it's just really powerful. Like, it gives it this even darker layer when it was already pretty dark to see him just gunning people down like this and like being like right yeah. well, fuck this like i i'm not standing for this and yeah, yeah. It, it, it's this moment of catharsis and it's incredibly visceral graphic catharsis that mm. shouldn't need to happen like this person shouldn't have to murder 
multiple people and burn down a warehouse to feel catharsis, but yeah. it, it this is what it leads to. And then you get this, then, this one-two punch of, like, is it that, like, this was such a violent, cathartic moment, it's what led to him stopping doing it? Or is it his he catches his son putting the white stripe on, and he gets pretty... He doesn't hit him, but he gets quite shouty and grabby about it, and, like... Is it both, you know, that led to him stopping being Hooded Justice? Because that's the thing. The legend of Hooded Justice is he just disappeared into the night almost and no one ever knew who he was while all the others handed in their identities and everything. It's like, and maybe he did continue to be Hooded Justice for a bit after this because we didn't get anything to suggest the others had been brought in or anything and, like, the year probably doesn't work out. But, like, this yeah, potentially we, putting we, him we... down the path of, like, not wanting to do this anymore. Yeah, we know, like, June leaves after this. Like, she says, I'm going back to Tulsa. Don't follow me. Like, you've, you've raised your fists at our son. Like, you doing this in our household is the generational trauma mm-hmm. that is going to infect it. Like, he's not going to get over this. Like, he's watched his father go out and be violent and beat up criminals, and that's going to be an influence over him forever. And I'm going to take our son away before you get to infect it anymore. Yeah. And so... But maybe left... the damage is done, and maybe this son, is who is presumably Angela's father... Um, yes, he is Angela's father. You know, maybe this, in some way, behaviour gets passed down to her, because she is quite a violent person when yeah. pushed in the right directions. And, you know, she says, you never should have done this. And it's like, she somewhat encouraged him to do it. But, like, I take the... She then goes on to say, like, you know, I thought this would help you, but it clearly hasn't, almost. And, like, yeah, yeah it, it, it's horrible stuff. And, like, seeing her, like, knowing that she leaves and that, like, he never goes back to Tulsa or not for a long time. And it, some of the PTPD here is Nelson Gardner's will and saying that, like, Will made it clear that you should never go to Tulsa to try and contact his family and everything. Because, like, he leaves everything to Will and his will. His name is Will Reeves. Obviously, there will be a lot of them. All I can tell you is he is black, he is, like, tall and athletic and this, that and the other. Please don't go to Tulsa to try and find him. So, like, Nelson is respecting that part of his wishes. I love that kind of, like, the final part of that PTPD is him going, if he continues to rebuff all the positive stuff, just put it in a trust fund tell him it's there if he wants it and if he doesn't want it just leave it to a rock like that money doesn't (laughs) that money doesn't deserve to go to anyone but yeah so and the show then makes a very large jump ahead (laughs) as we cut from the the 1950s to 2019 as we finally get to see exactly how it's so ridiculous but i love it that he has kept this projector. He is obviously... I would assume Lady True did it for him. But he now has a portable version. It is the flashlight, the incredibly bright flashlight that we saw him wielding at the beginning. And it's a little tiny portable hypnosis machine. And he just... The shot of him just holding it in his face while he's making him wheel him across the, the field or whatever. It's just so funny. But then, like, you know, the clear implication, it's like... Oh, he made him hang himself. So him saying, I've got psychic powers, is him just kind of being a bit glib in that, no, he isn't capable of lifting a 200-pound man, but he still did this. And, like, yeah, it's so fucking bonkers, but good. And, like, he says, like, you have a a clan uniform or whatever, and we get that confirmation it was my grandfather's, I have a right to keep it or whatever. And, like, yeah, I don't know how we don't, we don't well know, we knows. We don't know how he got information. Yeah, because he even says, like, 
I don't deal well with stairs and everything. So it's like, you know, maybe he and Lady True's partnership, like, you know, she's got spies everywhere. I don't know. But yeah, this this scene of him making him hang himself is it's wild. Like what a like full circle moment and like like you said to me that like a clue here is that you know, like restoring it is a black character that lynched a racist white cop and like in his past some racist white cops tried to lynch him and like it almost comes full circle and it like retroactively makes the mystery of Judd like more poignant it's all just really powerful yeah I I like that they get him back like Judd is back for this one little moment here like he still is ostensibly a regular on the show despite the fact (laughs) he's been dead since the very end of the pilot episode how many has he been Uh, in like at least I think this is his this is his third I don't think he's in any others okay and I don't think he's any more going forward either. But like, it's very similar to the comedian, wherein famously Jeffrey Dean Morgan, like when first offered the role, didn't want it because he dies in the first scene, and then he was convinced, like, yeah, but the character looms so large over the rest of the film, and that's what made him do it. And it's like Judd, in the same way, Judd is dead from the first episode, but like the character has felt present since then because even when you don't see him we're at his funeral service we have keen talking about him like all of this sort of stuff and like yeah i mean i'm not saying judd is the comedian but like it's a very it's they're, a they're similar roles. wheelhouse yeah. yeah like the show is playing on archetypes like you have stuff like looking glass is similar to rorschach mm-hmm. and angela's kind of playing off vibes of like night owl and silk specter and obviously we have silk specter in the show mm-hmm. and Judd is very much the kind of comedian-esque figure. Like, they're, they're playing in archetypes as opposed to direct riffs. Ozzy's still Ozzy in Manhattan. Still and Ozzy's still Ozzy, but... yeah. <laughs> right. And then the episode ends. We don't get a combination to what happened with Wade at the end of the last episode. Instead, Angela wakes up in Lady True's compound with mm-hmm. an IV drip, very similar to what her daughter had on her. Oh, maybe and... it's not nostalgia itself, then. Maybe it's like, this is how you fix someone who you fed nostalgia to um so maybe yeah, at some but... point she gave her daughter nostalgia and she's been trying to fix her or something i don't know but yeah like she is in her custody we obviously get a jump you know the the size of that jump it feels deliberate on his part where he doesn't want to reveal everything because he you know he made this big point of i'm going to reveal it all to her and she'll never forgive me but it's like these memories would almost make it more justifiable that he killed Judd. I feel she would be less angry with him now than she was before when he just kept being like, you know, oh, I had to do it or whatever. So it's like, there is still something more happening here. Like, how Hooded Justice comes to be involved with Lady True and whatever they're planning together. And... Yeah, and and what would drive Will to go to Tulsa at the time that he goes to Tulsa? Yes. Yeah. Where, like, why? Know, why where... would he be aware that Judd is involved in this? What's what is his awareness of, yeah. like, how much Cyclops is related to the Seventh Cavalry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like Lady True, obviously, like because it. So our PTPD here, one of them is a big write-up on Lady True, and how she chose her own name at five, how her mother tried to have her killed by her like trainer or something. She's launched fifty probes into space. She has a big satellite devoted to taking these like pictures of dr manhattan on mars she has all these booths around the world she went out of her way to prove he didn't cause cancer she has come up with her own lithium batteries that like restored the electric car stuff and everything so like she is very clearly very fascinated by dr manhattan and there is something going on here with that and 
Hooded Justice in one way or another is assisting. So we still don't know that big plan. Uh, I also like the speculation the comedian was her father or that Robert Redford was her father. Uh, no, Robert Redford is, is the father of her daughter and all, the, all this speculation. Yeah. All, all good it's, stuff. It's, it's a fun gossip trashy magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also like very illuminating. Like, uh, we, you know, obviously the comedian probably isn't her father, but like, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it's very fun and like, playing with the, the source material and everything and i also like there's a memo from laurie where she she confirms she reads all of pt's memos because he repeatedly says that like no one reads them yeah exactly and she's like i find it fucking weird that you say the, that you write them instead of saying them out loud when we're in the same physical space but whatever <laughs> and she also confirms angela has said every word of this flashback episode out loud so everybody knows what angela knows now certainly that hood of justice is is well she acknowledges that I suspected he was my father, and Petey writes in his his little thing about Nelson's will, because uh, they're now investigating all of this shit, and he says how it reframes a huge part of American history, that Hooded Justice was a bisexual black man and everything. And yeah, it's a very good pair of episodes, for sure. Yes, I, very... I think I said that this is, this is probably the best episode we'll do in terms of just overall quality of the content we're covering. Yeah. I Which think... isn't to, anything, nothing to disparage what's coming up or what's come beforehand. I just think these two episodes fall so firmly into the wheelhouse of what Lindelof does well. Yeah, which is... it's, like, I, it's like the pilot was a very, very good episode, but then episode two wasn't quite as good, uh, whereas like both of these are very good. They're both very good in different ways. They're both illuminating in different ways, getting into different points of the history of the overall story they're telling focusing it on characters to do that they're yeah. both singularly focused on events or people and it gives them a sense of structure and focus that you sometimes don't find yeah. in prestige television especially in the wake of yeah. things such as game of thrones which is <laughs> more more of a thing of like we have this huge sprawling cast and we have to give them something to do every single episode yeah like to the point where like they had to put a press release out for season five and go like a character isn't going to be in this season because <laughs> and everyone we don't have... was so devastated <laughs> yeah but we don't have enough time to fill with this car character rather than being like i would love to see an episode of game of thrones or a season of game of thrones that was structured like this which was like each episode focuses on, on what that character's story is for the season and then we don't see them at all yeah. for the rest of the season and maybe they come back in later on if there's stuff that needs to play out on multiple continents at the same time but yeah but I mean, you know, it's not like Angela is missing from the show as your main character. No. Like they've found ways to weave her in, while still telling these stories about side characters who, like, Wade might even be fucking dead now. We don't know because, like, you hear Laurie say, like, "Oh, they're like someone go find him." For all I know, he's part of Seven K, and it's like he might be dead. I don't know. We'll find out. But like. I could see a world where we don't even fucking see him again after his giant, like, landmark episode. Yeah, like, it, it, it's so effective. And, like, you know, be brave. Like, don't cave to the pressure to have all of your big-name actors in every single scene of your every episode and everything. Like, tell the story yeah. that you want to tell. Like, never compromise in the face of absurdity. Any final thoughts? No, I mean, I've, I've done my speculations that are probably wildly wrong with some elements of truth about Ozymandias and Lady True and, and all of that. I, I, I really can't wait to watch more. Like, that has been the thing, the prevailing thing about this. I'm almost grateful of this lockdown giving us a bit more time because 
on our regular way of recording this kind of thing, I'd be waiting about a week <laughs> between episodes, but I've been able to watch a lot of it close together and I've really, really yeah. enjoyed it. And every time we finish recording, I can't wait to like sprint and go watch the next two. Yeah. Um, but this this is fun. I don't know about you, Matt, but there is one colour that's been missing from this show overall. Uh, is it blue? Which might become... It is blue. Is it light blue? From the next week. Good. Is there life on Mars? I don't know, but Doctor Manhattan is eventually coming. Uh, that that big shot in the trailers. It wasn't in the first trailer. Was it? I feel it was. A, it it was... wasn't in the first trailer. It was in the Comic Con trailer that they revealed, oh, okay. and it's Doctor Manhattan picking up a mask of his face, yes. or someone blue picking up a mask of their face. It feels a bit like when they revealed Wolverine was in um, X Men Apocalypse or whatever. And it's like you could have gotten away with not doing this, but I don't know. It's a fun crowd pleasing moment, and it's like yeah. It is, and I, I just remember when Damon was answering questions on Instagram and someone asked him, you're not going to be mean enough to not have Dr. Manhattan to the final episode, and he, go, and he responds, I wouldn't be that mean, but here we are six episodes into the show, and all we've seen of Dr. Manhattan is that, that one shot in the first episode of him destroying a building on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I continue to be incredibly bummed out that there's so little of this. It's probably better for it artistically, but I can't believe we're almost at the end. I know, there only two more episodes left to record, but whilst the show will end, this podcast won't because... Nothing ever ends except the show, which will right. end after nine episodes. It's, after it's, nine it's episodes. an imperfect sign-off, but it's the closest <laughs> we've got. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, farewell. Bye, everyone. Oh,